With that, let us now turn to our passage for today, which is John 3, 1 through 15. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And this is the word of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm also one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, and we are continuing our teaching series this morning in the book of John. We've been watching Jesus as he engages different people, and we're noticing that as he does that, he has a different approach to different people. He tailors his approach to the specific person in front of him, and he tailors his approach to the need that he sees there. And as he does that, we get a different glimpse of who he is, a glimpse that helps build up our own faith and helps us understand a little bit better how to communicate to others. Now before I start this morning, I want to give you a framework for thinking about today's message, a way of thinking about maybe categorizing sermons in general. The point of any message on Sunday, what the reason that we're doing this, is to take what we just read from Scripture and help us understand how that helps us enter into this new life that Jesus has bought for us with his death and his resurrection. So every sermon is supposed to help us enter into this new life. It's supposed to help us connect the faith that we find in Scripture with our daily lives. But not every sermon does it in the same way. So for instance, there are messages that are more focused on helping us see God in all of his glory, more tipped in a direction that says, look at God, isn't he amazing? Don't, doesn't he just blow you away? Don't you want more of him? They're more oriented in a Godward direction. Other messages are a little bit more weighted on showing how this gospel actually gets lived out in daily life, how it impacts the roles that you and I have, how it impacts the decisions that we make. The focus is more on us as individuals as we live out our faith in this amazing God. Or we could have a message that's a little bit more directed toward community, 
toward the society in which we live? Well, what does it look like to live out our faith in this modern world? Messages like this can either then address an issue that's a little bit more immediate, one that's come to a head, we did that last week, or they can have a longer-term focus. They can talk about something that is not maybe as immediately applicable, but something that is, even though it's not on your radar, something that you encounter on a regular basis. They address an underlying theme in society, or a pattern, or, or a value, or a belief. Something that lies underneath of the way that people automatically think, instinctively act in the modern world. And they're focusing then on something that you're bumping up regularly against that challenges your faith. Especially it challenges your faith if you don't figure out how to address them. That's what we want to do this morning. We want to give tools to navigate one of the values and beliefs of this modern world. Now in today's encounter, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus. He's one of the established religious leaders of his day. And just as a thought experiment, what would you say to a leader today if you were given that opportunity? If you could talk to someone in a position of authority right now, what would you say? I think given the turmoil that we've experienced in this world over the last half year, over the last year, I think in some sense, most of us would want to be able to say, here's what I see as wrong with the world. Here's what I think you ought to do with it. Now, Jesus comes primed uh, for that kind of an interaction. We noticed last week he comes from a little backwater village, a place that other people saw as coming from the wrong side of the tracks. And yet from that tiny beginning, he has generated a stir within the larger community, and he is now uh, sort of leading a, a movement. Here comes a leader wanting to know what Jesus really thinks, and here's his opportunity. This is his chance to go on record, to influence the influencer, to shape policies, to impact even more people than he already has. Jesus is more than able to do that. He, as you study his life, you learn he's not afraid to talk about what was wrong in the socio-political world of his day. He's not afraid to talk about the things that are wrong in organized religion. He has no trouble at all speaking up to those in power. And yet he doesn't do that here. He doesn't address Nicodemus as a policymaker. Instead, he notices, here's an individual, and this individual has a unique need, a need that, that Jesus decides it, he needs to address. And the most important thing in that moment that Jesus thinks he can do is talk about the nature of spirituality. That some people are spiritual, and some people are not. That something has to happen in order for you to go from being not spiritual to spiritual. That spirituality has an absolute starting point in a person's life. And that absent that starting point, you cannot enter into what God is doing either in his kingdom, and because he can't enter into what he's doing in his kingdom, he can't enter into what he's doing in this world. And this blows Nicodemus' mind. He wasn't prepared for this way of thinking 2,000 years ago. I would argue that in our modern world, we are also not prepared for this way of thinking today. Our world believes that spirituality is something that everybody has. As a society, we believe that all individuals are spiritual, and, and, and not that some are and others are not. Yes, we can discern certain differences, different forms of spirituality, but the modern world believes that underneath those differences is a shared spirituality, something that is generally true of all of us as human beings, that each way of expressing that spirituality, therefore, is equally valid. That spirituality is essentially what? It's a continuum. It ranges from less spiritual to more spiritual, 
And the only difference is how aware you are or how active you are on that continuum. Now live in that world, our world. Breathe that air, swim in that water, take it in uncritically, and it'll change you. It'll affect you. How will it do that? Well, one, you'll start to discover that your gratefulness to God diminishes. It's no longer so amazing that he would involve himself in your life and rescue you from yourself so that you could be with him. It's nice that he would do that, but as that larger influence starts to impact you, it doesn't feel quite as necessary anymore because there are many ways to get to God. Let that prevailing belief in a blurred spirituality infiltrate your mind, infiltrate your heart, and you'll discover that your heart is growing cold toward the Lord. Or second, the more that it affects you, the less confidence that you have in God. See, if everybody is finding God in their own way, then obviously what? So are you. Which puts the onus where? On you to find him. To do what you need to do in order to find him. Live long enough in this larger world. Don't attempt to address it. You'll start to believe that what is most important in your relationship with God is your pursuit of him, not his pursuit of you. You'll lose confidence that he actually cares about you, that he actually wants you, that he loves you. Third, your passion for those who don't know Christ will cool off. If everyone is finding God in their own way, the implication is what? Everybody finds him, which means they don't need you to tell them about Christ, and so you don't feel as great a burden for the people around you who don't know him. Now, will that happen overnight? Well, of course not, but soak yourself in that world. You can either actively buy into that understanding of spirituality or passively just don't resist it. Don't fight it. Let it influence how you think and act, and over time, it'll undermine your faith. It will invite you to care less about the people around you, and it will keep you from seeing people's real need, and it'll keep you from being able to actually address their real needs. Now, what is it then that makes this modern version of spirituality, this conceptualization, plausible? It's because it fits into how the modern world is increasingly thinking about all of life. You and I live in a world of gray at this point in time, a world that is taking boundaries that used to be very clearly fixed in people's minds, either or kinds of categories, boundaries between various states of being. Our world is taking those boundaries and doing what with them? It's blurring them, blurring those lines. For instance, you can take the case of Happy the Elephant. She's a pachyderm in the Bronx Zoo. She has a team of self-appointed lawyers, and they claimed in open court this past fall that happy should be recognized as a person. They argued she's incredibly complex, she can recognize herself in a mirror, and therefore they argue she should be considered a person, and if she's a person, she should no longer, in their words, be illegally detained by other persons. She should be freed from the zoo. So what was once understood as a hard distinction between human mammals and other mammals is what? It's, it's being blurred. And you're invited to consider in that blurring, maybe there's not much of a difference, maybe not much of a distinction, maybe the world is a little bit more like a continuum where things are not composed of distinct hard realities as much as they are more incrementally related to each other. Maybe the world's a little more gray. Well, let's take a more important case, case of marriage. If you are living with someone you're sharing the economic and domestic responsibilities of life with them, and you're intimate together. 
is there really a difference between that state of affairs and doing all of that plus taking public vows together? Or are the two things essentially the same? One just comes with a ceremony, you know, if you like that sort of thing. Is there really a boundary between the two that's fixed? Or is that boundary imposed by a certain cultural understanding within a certain society such that when society changes, the boundary changes? Is the world a little more gray? Or think about a non-binary approach to gender. And you realize that we live in a world that regularly urges us to think that boundaries are permeable, that life is fluid, that all of life is moldable, that what used to be understood as fixed boundaries between states of being are actually social constructions, that they are socially agreed upon ways of thinking about life. And if states of being can be socially constructed in one way, the argument goes, then they can just as easily be socially constructed in other ways. And you realize, you know, there's, there's some truth to that, right? Living in a world where there's nuance, not just stark contrasts, sometimes the, the world of nuance is a little more accurate. For instance, isn't there a sense in which all of us are a little bit narcissistic, even if we don't hit all of the defined categories? Aren't we all a little too self-involved at times? Would you gladly let somebody else count the number of selfies that you have on your cell phone? You start to realize, yeah, there's, there's some accuracy there. Or aren't we all a little bit depressed at times? Maybe not what people would think of as clinical, but aren't all of us at some point a little less excited about life, a little bit harder to get out of bed in the morning, a little bit harder to push ourselves? Are those things more properly understood as hard and fast labels or, or more as a continua? You think, yes, there are times when blurred distinctions reflect the nature of reality better. But acknowledging that is not the same as saying all of life is socially constructed. Because there are things in life that are either or. Like pregnancy. You can't be kind of pregnant. It's not a continuum. You either are or you're not. The boundary is not fluid. It's fixed. Now notice... What Jesus is trying to do here with Nicodemus, he's trying to unpack the nature of spiritual reality, something that is invisible. And he doesn't turn to uh, something fluid as an illustration, something that's socially constructed, something with a permeable boundary. Instead, he turns to one of these things that is fixed, something that has an either-orness to it. And he says, this is what spirituality is. It's a matter of being born. It's a matter of having a certain kind of life at one point in time when you didn't have that kind of life at another point in time, and somehow you went from that not kind of life to this kind of life. And he's taking that invisible thing, spiritual life, something people can't see, and he's pulling an illustration from the physical world, the concrete world, in order to make it clearer, to unpack this invisible thing. Now, there's lots of options out there in that larger world. What he chose is something with a hard either-orness to it. There are other times where he'll use something that is a little bit more organic, a little bit more developmental. He'll talk about trees, crops growing, being, uh, producing ki different kinds of fruit. And he'll talk about something where the difference is a matter of degree from one day to the next, not a matter of kind. Okay, what do I mean by that? Trees do what? They get bigger. They don't suddenly morph into something completely other than what they were. 
He has those kinds of illustrations at his disposal. He'll use them at different times in different contexts. This time, he doesn't use one of those. This time, he chooses the either-orness of birth, of being born or not being born, when he wants to talk about what spirituality is. And so he says in verse 7, you must be born again. So what are we going to see in this passage? We're going to see three things about what the spiritual life is not, and three things that the spiritual life is based on this hard boundary kind of understanding. Three things that the spiritual life is not, three things that the spiritual life is. The first thing that the spiritual life is not is it's not an automatic part of what it means to be human. It's not an element that we enter into this world with and that we gradually grow into. Might be easier if we think about the contrast first. Let's think about something that is essential to being a human something that you enter the world with. And the most obvious part of being human is what? It, it's that you have a body. Everything that you do on this earth is mediated through your body. It's essential to being human. And so you enter this world with physicality. When you think of something that you do, walking, singing, throwing a ball, working out calculus problems, those are abilities that grow out of what it means to be a bodily person. They're abilities that need to be developed, they need to be nurtured, trained, taught, but they're not added to you from the outside at some point in your life. Instead, they're extensions that come up out of you as your body matures. Jesus says spiritual life is not like that. Merely being physically alive doesn't guarantee that you're spiritually alive, at least not in the way that Jesus is talking about, not alive to God in the way that Jesus is describing. In other words, you don't enter into this world with some kind of latent, healthy spirituality inside of you, something that just needs to be woken up in order to live well. Instead, Jesus says, you have to be born spiritually. At some point after your physical birth, there has to be a spiritual birth. Jesus says, reborn, born again. Something has to happen to you. Something that has a starting point. Something that happens to you along the way that didn't happen to you before. Now, some people are very aware when this takes place. Some people are not aware of when it takes place. But Jesus says, if, if, you're not, if this has not happened to you, you're not spiritual in the way that he's talking about. So first, the spiritual life that Jesus is talking about is not an automatic part of what it means to be human. Second, you can't understand the spiritual life that Jesus is talking about if you don't already have it. He's very stark here. Verse 3, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Or verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Cannot see it, cannot enter it. Jesus is not coming to Nicodemus and saying, hey Nicodemus, you want to know about spirituality? Well, it's a little bit like what you and the Pharisees are already doing. You, the religious leaders of the day, it's a little bit like the whole enterprise that you've already got going. You know, there, there's a lot of overlap between what I'm saying, what you're saying. We're all searching for God. We're all trying to do God's work. Just keep being sincere. It's basically all the same. He doesn't say that. He says, cannot see it. Cannot enter it. You can't see it if you haven't had this rebirth. Until rebirth happens, there's a blindness to the nature of spirituality that you can't escape. Without that rebirth, what Jesus is talking about is just confusing. And as you read through the dialogue, you realize Nicodemus is very confused. 
He asks, verse 4, can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus, I, I don't understand what we're talking about here. Verse 9, how can these things be? Jesus is talking about things that don't make any sense to him. It would be a little bit like trying to tell a caterpillar about the beauty and the glory of flight, of what it means not to be tied down to the earth, slowly making your way along a branch one tiny little step at a time, or of there being a world in which you drink sweet nectar as, as you flit from flower to flower to flower instead of munching on the leaf that's right in front of you. There's an entire world where you live a radically different kind of life. It, it would be like trying to explain that to the caterpillar, and the caterpillar says, how can these things be? It doesn't make any sense. Without being born again, without the spiritual life, what Jesus says to you is just going to sound odd. You're going to be, he, he's going to be misunderstood. You can't see it, you can't enter it, you can't be part of it. Even if the caterpillar could begin to understand what you're saying, it can't live in the world that you're describing. It can't launch itself up into the air. It can't decide, I, I think I'll try eating something different today. It can't enter that world because in its present form, it's not suited for it. It hasn't yet been born into that world. So first, Jesus says that the spiritual life is not something you come with. Second, it's not something you can grasp while standing on the outside of it. And third, the spiritual life is not some kind of religious moral conformity. Think again here about who Jesus is talking to. Verse 1 tells us that Nicodemus is a member of the Pharisees, the religious leader, uh, insiders of the nation. And he's pretty high up among them. Verse 1, he's a ruler among the Jewish people. Verse 2, he speaks on behalf of the Pharisees. He can say to Jesus, we know, not I personally know, but we know. He can speak for them as a group. And verse 10, Jesus calls him a teacher of Israel. Here's the religious professional, one of the best that Israel has to offer. It's come to have this meaningful theological discussion with Jesus. Two rabbis sitting down to work out the gritty religious debates of the day. Only Nicodemus has no idea what they're talking about. From the very beginning, he's not keeping up. Somehow, over the years, he has missed the, the need that humans have for this inner transformation, the need for the birth of life where there was no life. Now, what's that tell you? It is scary easy to be religious, notably religious. A religious player, to rise high within the religious world, it is scary easy to look the part all while being clueless to the nature of spiritual reality. But if that's the case, if you are unaware that people need to come alive in order to have any real spirituality, then obviously that's not what he's been teaching all of these years. So what has he been teaching? If you're Israel's teacher, Israel's religious instructor, if you're recognized for it, but you're not teaching about a transforming inner spiritual life, then what is it that you can teach how to be a good religious person like yourself? And so you would focus on the things that good religious people do, the kinds of things that they think about, the kinds of things that they say, the kinds of things that they don't say, the kinds of things that they don't think about, the kinds of things that they don't do. In other words, you're going to have to focus on morality and on helping people develop this external moral conformity because you can't really address the inner 
dynamics of a person. And so you're going to work at helping people look good, to look the part, like what? Like you look the part. And so you would teach things like God is good. Here's how he's good. In these kinds of ways, he's good. He's your example of goodness. So now you learn to be good, like God is good. And the implication then would be what? If you're good enough, then maybe someday you can be with him. That's what every other religion and philosophical system of ethics teaches. They all teach some way of being good, of being moral according to their system, of identifying things about yourself that are not good, that urge you then to be a better person, a good person. They focus on giving you ways to be good. And if you're diligent, the promise is, and if you work hard doing what religion tells you, then you'll probably clean up. You'll look pretty good on the outside. Your life will be pretty good. It'll look pretty good. It'll look like Nicodemus's. It will look like you have real life. But inside you won't. If you've ever tried to live this way, you know that it's a trap. What happens if you go down this road of trying to be good? It doesn't pay off. You discover you just can't be as good as you want to be. That there's always something where your conscience bothers you. Always something that you know that it wasn't good, as good as it could be, certainly not as good as God would want it to be. More than that, if you try this, it's going to lead to a radically insecure life. Because once you get on this treadmill of having to do good and having to do good and having to do good and having to do good in order to be good, you can never stop. You're only as good as your last goodness. Every new decision, every new thought, every new conversation is what? It's, it's a chance to be good or a chance not to be good. It's a chance to fail. So even if you're sitting here listening to me and, and this has been your approach to life and you've passed the test so far today, you have done absolutely nothing wrong, said nothing wrong, thought nothing wrong, your conscience is clear. If that's the case, guess what? There's still this afternoon. And, and then there's tonight. And then there's tomorrow and, and the day after that and, and the day after that and so forth. If your goal is to live morally, to be good enough for God, there are an endless number of opportunities to fail. Which means that what? You're going to live thinking about that next opportunity. You're going to start to consider it in advance. You're going to start to become a little anxious and a little nervous. Jesus could live his entire life without being anxious and worried about that next event, without thinking about that next test coming up. How long do you think you could do that without wondering whether you'll pass or fail the next one? Could you go a whole half an afternoon? Could you go a whole day, a whole week? You realize that at some point, you're going to give in to anxiety and, and give in to worry. Or even if you convince yourself that you are good always, that you've never dropped the ball anywhere at any time, you've not given in to anxiety and worry, where does that leave you? means you are never going to understand the rest of us. You're never going to be any good to the rest of us. You're never going to have compassion for us. You'll never have tenderness. Jesus did. Jesus was able to live absolutely perfectly and still have compassion for all of the rest of us. But that's not going to be where you'll go. At least one point in time, you'll have this thought that says, you know what? <laughs> I'm really tired of everybody else not trying. I can do it. It's not easy, but I can do it. I overcome my temptations. I don't give in. Why do they? What is wrong with everyone else? At least once you'll have that thought. 
So instead of being anxious, you'll be arrogant. This is what it's like to be on that treadmill. Very much aware of your failure, the dangers of anxiety and arrogance everywhere. In other words, this outward moral conformity has nothing to do with the kind of inner spiritual life that Jesus is talking about. Nicodemus has dedicated his life to something that has nothing to do with real life. That could not have been easy to hear. That's hard enough to hear in the year 2020. It was not any easier to hear it the first time Jesus said it. It would not have been easy for the people who first read this book. John wrote this book back in the first century when the Roman Empire ruled the world. They had plenty of room for spiritual diversity. You could have your own gods as long as you're willing to acknowledge their gods. Once you did that, you could have your own. And into this world, Jesus comes and he sounds really intolerant. There's only one way to have spiritual life. It's this way. That would have been incredibly offensive to the early readers of this book. Nicodemus, on the other hand, would have been fine with that. He was used to hearing there's only one God. But then Jesus had to spoil it by saying, by the way, Nicodemus, you don't know him. You're not part of his kingdom. You have no idea what the new birth even is. Jesus is very clear in verse 11. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. That you there is plural. Nicodemus, you and the rest of the Pharisees don't receive what I'm telling you. You're on the outside of spirituality just like the Gentiles are on the outside of spirituality. You're no different than they are. No one's going to like hearing Jesus say this. Roman society is going to say, what do you mean there's only one way to see this, that we have to be reborn? Israelite society is going to respond with, what do you mean we're on the outside? No one's going to be happy listening to this which actually gives you a little confidence that this actually happened, that Jesus actually said it. See, if you sat down one time and you wanted to create a religion, if this wasn't true, but you were trying to get a whole group of people together to start a new religious movement, you would not write it this way. You would not start by alienating and offending every person in every possible society while then making your new movement the target of the full might of the Roman Empire. You wouldn't write this unless what? Unless what you're reading is history, not fantasy. You'd only write this if it really happened. So according to Jesus, that's what the spiritual life is not. It's not something you're born with. It's not something that you understand from the outside, and it's not the same as moral conformity. So what is it? Three things, but much quicker. Don't get nervous. First, spiritual life is something that's given to you by God, not something that you give to yourself. Spiritual life is to be spirit-birthed. Birth is a great illustration. Do you realize that birth is the only thing that no one has ever had any part in deciding to give themselves? No one asks to be born. No one asks to be given life. No one does anything to be born. You don't conceive yourself. You don't carry yourself to term over nine plus months. You don't labor for yourself. You don't give yourself life. It's one of the most humbling parts of being a human, to realize how little you had to do with the fact that you're actually here right now. That's the same thing with spiritual birth as well. It's an act of God's spirit to give you life that you didn't have before. Notice the metaphor here. The spirit is not working with something that already exists. He's not taking a sickened spirit and making it well. 
He's not taking a weak spirit and making it strong. He's not starting with a hungry, famished spirit and nourishing it. Instead, he makes something alive that wasn't alive before. To enter into the kingdom of God takes more than looking like God, takes more than acting like God. You have to be birthed by God. And so just like there's no room for pride in being physically born, there's no room for pride in being reborn. You didn't do anything for yourself to get that. There's gratitude, there's thankfulness, there's no pride. So first, spiritual life is given to you by God. Second, this spiritual life is active, not passive. It's given to you, yes. You didn't do anything to get that. But once given, it becomes very active. Jesus says that when you watch someone who is spirit-born, it's like watching the effect of the wind. Verse 8. You can't see the wind itself, but you can hear it. You have no idea what its source is. You have no idea what its destination, but you can hear it. It has an impact on you. It's measurable. Extend the metaphor. You can feel it. You can see the effect that it has all around you. Jesus says the same thing is true of a person who's born of the Spirit. You have no idea how it happened, but you can sense the change. There's something obvious that has happened. Reborn people act. They do things. They don't just sit there waiting for life to happen to them. Instead, they're reaching out with the spiritual life that's inside. They're expressing it, acting on it, acting because of it. Again, here, think about a child that's born. What's the very first thing that they do? (gasps) They, they, They take a breath. Great big breath in. Now, why are they doing that? Are they breathing in order to give themselves life? And you realize, no, <laughs> they're, they're breathing in because they have life. They breathe in because they're already alive. They express the life that they already have. Reborn people do the same thing. They express the life that's now inside. They express, they live out this new life that's inside of them. You can see it, and it's obvious. So first, the spiritual life that Jesus is talking about is given to you. Second, that spiritual life expresses itself. Third, how does it express itself? Jesus says one of the earliest signs of the spiritual life is that a person believes and that their belief is focused on Jesus. They're looking, verse 15, for eternal life, but they're not trusting themselves to go out and get that life for themselves. Instead, they're believing that Jesus will give them that life. They understand the trap that Nicodemus fell into. They're looking to Jesus. They're not looking to anyone or anything else for that kind of life. Verse 13 again. No, Jesus speaking. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. That's how Jesus would talk about himself. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus, again, is being politically incorrect. He says no one has ascended into heaven. No one has been able to plot a course that will get them into heaven. No one has ascended into heaven. There is no path that any human has built from here to there, which, again, is exactly what all the other religions are trying to do. They tell you, if you want to have eternal life, then here's the path. Here's the way. Seek God diligently. Do the right things. Don't do wrong things. Try making up for times when you've done the wrong things. If you live this way, there's a chance that it'll work. Jesus comes along and says, no one has ascended into heaven. 
except the one who descended from heaven, except me. I came from heaven, but I didn't come here to give you a checklist of all the things that you need to do in order to get on that path to heaven. I didn't come to tell you what the path looks like. I came to be the path. I came to do something for you that you could not do for yourself. That's why he talks about Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. He's referring back to a time when the Israelites came out of Egypt as slaves. They liked being rescued, but they didn't like doing what God told them to. They didn't like obeying him. If that meant that they had to go through the desert, they didn't like the hardships of traveling through the desert, and so they sinned. They complained. Back in Numbers uh, 21, verse 5, they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. They complained. God doesn't love us. He doesn't care about us. He's not taking care of us the right way. He just brought us out here to kill us. Now, the penalty for sin is death. It's what Jesus told the first human beings. They ignored him. Death entered into this world. Here the Israelites are ignoring God again, sinning again. And he let them taste his judgment against sin. He sent poisonous serpents among them. You almost think, well, he is going to kill them. They're right. No, they're wrong. He did not have evil plans for them. Wasn't longing to kill them. And so when they cried out for forgiveness, he told Moses, take a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and lift it up high. And anyone who looks up at that serpent will be healed. Now think about what's happening there in that moment. Those who had been bitten had poison running through their veins, death running through their body. They had no life inside of them that could overcome that death unless what? Unless somehow that death was replaced with life. That's what God promised to do, to give them the life that they could not give to themselves. All they had to do was trust him. All they had to do was trust that he would do for them what he said he would. They had to believe. Jesus takes that account and says, account is really about me. I will also be lifted up this time on a cross, not a pole. And I'll give eternal life to anyone who believes that what I do on the cross is enough to get rid of the spiritual poison that's running through their veins, the spiritual death that is in them. I will give them life, spiritual life that they don't have. Now here's the danger of living in the modern world. It is very easy not to believe. Very easy to have spiritual poison running through your veins, but to think that you're okay anyway. That would not have been possible in the desert. If you had venom burning through your veins and you're feeling your life ebb away, you know you have a problem. You can't deny it. But when the larger world today tells you that spiritually you're okay, you're sincere, you're seeking after God in your own way. It's all good. When that happens, it is so easy to be anesthetized to your real condition, numb to how bad the problem really is. And yet by God's grace, you can't be completely numb. If you don't have real spiritual life, if you have spiritual poison running through your veins, there will be symptoms that tell you that it's there. Symptoms like, you have no real love or passion for God. No sense of gratitude toward him. No desire to be with him. 
Yes, you, you might make time to read the Bible and to pray, but you have to make yourself make time to do those things. It's not because you want to. It's because it's something that you think you have to do. Frankly, you'd rather be doing something else. That's a symptom of spiritual poison, of spiritual death. It's a symptom of the absence of life. Or you'll find no joy in living the life that God's given you. You wish that you had a different one, a better one. You grumble about the things you have to deal with. You grumble about the things that he wants you to do. You really don't like his commands. And when you do obey, if you obey, you have to force yourself to do so. And you have really no concern about anyone else's spiritual condition. You don't think about other people living with no life inside of them. You don't think that they're in danger of being eternally spiritually dead. That thought doesn't occur to you. And when it does occur to you, it doesn't move you. At least not enough to say anything to them. Do you know that that would have been impossible in the desert? If you knew you were dying, that you had no hope of real life, and then you looked at this snake up on a pole, you believed that God wanted to save you from death and that he would, if you did that and you were healed, how do you think you would respond? Don't you think there'd be some warmth inside of you for God? Some thankfulness? Gratefulness? More interest in him, in this one who doesn't hold your sins against you, but loves you enough to give you life? There would be all of that. There'd be a whole lot more. You'd feel much more confident that he loved you, regardless of what he was leading you through in life. You would embrace your life with more optimism, more boldness, You'd embrace his commands, knowing that he only gives them to you for your good. You'd obey him. Why? Because a God who's this good, to not hold your sins against you, is a God worth listening to. You'd want to. And you would care about the people around you dying of poison. There is no way that after being healed that you would keep that news to yourself. You would tell every single person that you came across that they didn't have to die that they could trust God to cure them just like he's cured you. That way of thinking would just make sense. Any other way of thinking wouldn't. If you don't have love and delight for God, if you don't have hope and optimism for your life, if you don't care about the people around you, maybe it's time to ask, do I have real life inside? Maybe I've not been born. Maybe, like Nicodemus, I'm just good at being good. If so, then ask Jesus to give you this life. He did not come to this earth just to teach you about the nature of true spirituality. He came to give it to anybody who asks him for it. He came to give it to you. Ask him for it. Or maybe you once had those things. Love, delight, passion, joy. You can remember trusting Jesus. You can remember feeling alive at one point. But somewhere along the line, that's gotten dull over the years. You've lost the wonder of what it means to have this new life, to be born spiritually. If that's the case, look to Jesus again. He didn't come here and die for you in order to birth you spiritually to then abandon you as an orphan. A God who is this good, a God who would give up his life so that you could have life, is not going to turn his back on you now. He'll give you everything that you need for that life to be healthy, for it to be vibrant. 
He died to forgive you for the deadness that you had before. He died to forgive you for the coldness that creeps in at times. Look to him. Believe for the first time. Keep believing. But look to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came knowing what we most needed was to be brought to life inside. Thank you, Lord, that that was on your heart and your mind as you engaged with people like Nicodemus. Thank you that you have a great desire and a passion for your people to revive our hearts when we're flagging, when we're tired and, and weary. Lord God, do that for me. Do that for my brothers and sisters this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.